Um, all right, you can do. We can do it again. Ten in my head and then say it, but I'm gonna count to ten and fuck. Yeah, just get to a really zen place, okay? Just breathe in. Oh, Lauren, give me an A. Okay, let's do it. Ready? Let's do an A. One, two. So that brought you down after our Zencaster disaster. Hello and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn. I am your host, Hannah Chapman, and this week I am Team Elizabeth Gaskell. And I am your other host, Lauren Burke, and I am also Team Elizabeth Gaskell. We are on the same side this week. And like this month. I guess. Actually, yes, you're right. This month. <laughs> it's Gaskell month. It's North and South time, people. It is. Get excited. We have um, so many things planned for North and South month. Um, but yeah, yeah. First, we're going to tackle this book. We're going to tackle today the first 10 chapters. How about that? If you haven't read it yet, pause this podcast, go to your local bookstore, buy a <laughs> copy, read 10 chapters, just the first 10 not like a random selection of 10 chapters yeah yeah don't jump around (laughs) and then then you can join the club there you go and i want to say a really quick hello to all of the gaskell heads that have like joined the facebook group like in the last week yes hello and welcome um the enthusiasm over elizabeth gaskell has been just really overwhelming it's been great I love it. I love that. Um, I love that we're talking about her because I just feel like no one else is really doing any Gaskell stuff, right? Uh, yeah, I think that must be why people have kind of like grabbed onto it because when when it comes yeah. to Austin and the Brontes, it's like who isn't talking about Austin and the Brontes? You know, seriously, there's like I mean, one hundred Austin and Bronte podcasts out there. It's insane, and we are the top with the best one. <laughs> no. if only (laughs) so um yeah we are going to dedicate this entire month to elizabeth gaskell and then we will return with austin and bronte programming during the month of december but while we are in manchester in december uh, volunteering at gaskell house we will be recording more gaskell episodes so uh we'll come at you with those in january now um During our time in Manchester, we will probably do an entire episode that's just focused on the life of Elizabeth Gaskell. So we're going to get more in depth with her. But today I wanted to give you guys a few Gaskell like quick hits, you know, just so we just so we know where we stand with Elizabeth before we jump into North and South. Okay, that's convenient because would you like to know a secret? Yeah, I don't know anything about Elizabeth Gaskell. (laughs) Like nothing. Excellent. I didn't. I didn't read the Wikipedia page or any biographies. Oh, because perfect. I just I wanted to be a blank canvas. Excellent. Well, she is actually a really fascinating lady, and she had a great life. Um, and let's let's just go over a few things here. So she was born Elizabeth Cleghorn Stevenson, September 29th, 1810. Now, just for your reference, Jane Austen was born in 1775 and Charlotte Bronte was born in 1816. Um, Elizabeth was born in Chelsea, London, one of my favorite places. Of course is. Of course. 
A um, little bit different, though, in 1810 than it is now. The rent well, is like a still, little bit cheaper. Still fancy. Yeah. So it's a little nice. It's still fancy. It's still filled with like artists and, um, you know, sort of like liberal fun people. Oh, okay. Well, then it has changed. Yeah, it has changed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. Elizabeth was the youngest of eight children. Unfortunately, only Elizabeth and her brother survived. Um, so yeah, Victorian age, you know, infant death rates. Yeah. It's yeah. Those it's, kids, they were just popping off. Yeah, they really were. It's really upsetting. So um yeah, and then her mother actually dies when she's 13 months old. So here we have a nice like what? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Comparison to the Brontes, right? Like very early on she experienced you know, the death of her mother. Just there's the shadow of these death, yeah, the death of all these siblings. So yeah, it's kind of a it's a hard childhood. Um, and I will say this too: both of her uh, parents were Unitarians, and um, that will you know come up quite a bit when we talk about Elizabeth Gaskell. Her father was a former Unitarian minister, actually, who ended up breaking with the church. So we're going to talk a lot about that today. Um. He ended up becoming... There's so many parallels. There are. There's a lot of parallels here. Um, he actually ended up becoming an editor and like a farmer. That was his thing. He was like a gentleman farmer. What? Yeah. And um, <laughs> he ended up working for the government later on. And it was all like sort of farming related. Um, but yeah, after his wife died, he didn't really know quite how to handle Elizabeth. He was just sort of... Yeah. Just didn't know what to do. And Elizabeth's um, mother's sister, Hannah, stepped in and was good like... Name, good name. Good name. Good, good name. Hannah's good gal. a good people. Yeah. And um, she stepped in like, I will, you know, I will help raise Elizabeth. Um, Hannah was actually, I think she was divorced. And she was divorced from quite a wealthy man. They oh, had, uh, that's quite shocking well, for that time, isn't it? it it's quite shocking. So, um... So yeah, we'll again. We're gonna get into it. I know I'm just like breezing over the facts here. Okay, but um, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no, no worries. But she had a daughter who was disabled, actually, and that daughter also knew that she, you know, because she was disabled, like she probably wouldn't have children, and so she also wanted to step in and help with Elizabeth. And she was like, "Hey, mom, let's raise this little girl. Like, I have this inheritance coming to me. You know, when dad kicks off, like." I'm gonna be a wealthy gal and yeah. um you know we can we can help elizabeth out and i can give her so i can leave her some money well um as it happens they were on their way to actually go alter the will to include elizabeth in the will yeah. but um hannah's daughter died no before they could actually write her in so well, what happened to the money yeah yeah it goes to another relation right so it just oh it, my gosh yeah even though that was her intent. Ugh. So yeah, just like really, really heartbreaking. So, um, you know, Hannah ends up raising Elizabeth basically on her own um, with, you know, other family involved, her sisters and whatnot. Um, Cranford is very, I don't know if you guys have like watched Cranford, the miniseries. I love it. I, I haven't, haven't, I haven't read it yet either, obviously. Which maybe we should do on the podcast. But um, Cranford is definitely about this like small town, like full of women raising, you know, young women. 
And um, that is very much inspired by Elizabeth Gaskell's upbringing. Okay. Which was in Nutsford. Nutsford. So, a real life Cranford. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nutsford. Cranford. Yep. I'm piecing it Work. together. It works. Yep. It tracks out. So, yeah, um, Elizabeth grew up in Nutsford. She was raised by her Aunt Hannah. Um, She had, Unitarians are pretty liberal, so they were all about education. So she had a pretty, you know, decent education. It was very balanced between, like, home and sort of, like, those womanly duties, right? Like, yeah, how to be, you know, a good housekeeper, how to, you know, be an entertainer. Those are very important um to elizabeth and you'll see that later on and then also she was sent away to boarding school where she learned you know the classics and her accomplishments and all that good stuff so um after leaving boarding school elizabeth sort of bounced from family member to family member okay so she's kind of her father's still living her father has remarried she's not really close to him or her stepmother But she kind of bounces around and um, eventually she meets a man. His name is William Gaskell. And they fall in love and they get married. And he is a Unitarian minister. Oh, my gosh. She just can't get enough of the Unitarians. She can't. So um, long, long story short, Elizabeth Gaskell ends up becoming a minister's wife. And I think this is important to keep in mind as we discuss the first 10 chapters of North and South. We will discuss more of her life, and I'm sure I've, like, glossed over things and gotten things a little bit jumbled, but, you know, we'll get into details and we'll get experts on to talk about it um, in the coming weeks. But, yeah, I just want to give you guys a little primer before we jump in. So, Hannah, you are tackling the first five chapters. I am tackling them to the ground and killing them. Okay, let's do it. So... I want to start off by saying that I think Elizabeth Gaskell is very readable. Yes. Yes. She has this kind of really unique, It you know, it feels weird to be comparing her to um, either Austen or any of the Brontes because her work is so different. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's going to be like some themes that are similar, but then I think that's kind of like the time and society. So expectations of characters and like people's reactions to things are kind of more similar to each other then than they are to us now. Right. So it's kind of like, oh, they're all the same. But um, yeah, she's just got this really natural way of writing. I love that you get all of these different characters' perspectives all of the time. It's just, and it's mm-hmm. seamless. It doesn't feel clumpy when, you know, she'll switch from one person's point of view to the other within a chapter. And it's just, it's great. I really have enjoyed reading this. And I remember when I was struggling with Villette, you kept saying, like, just don't worry. You've got North and South coming. It's it's really readable. You'll be fine. Yeah, it is. It's it's just, yeah, it's very smooth. And like hard to stop. Hard to stop at the 10, uh, hard to stop at the 10 chapters. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just like kept going. I mean, you Sorry, didn't, guys. did you? <laughs> I did. I know some of our listeners have, you know, I think it's it's pretty split, isn't it? Like the people that kept reading and then my little squad who are holding off and we're yeah. going to do our 10 chapters at a time. That's nice. It's going to give us like, you know, some dynamics. It'll be new for us, you knowing things that I don't know. <laughs> 
Exactly. That's exciting. So chapter one is, uh, it's called Haste to the Wedding. And this basically sets up the scene, introduces all of the characters that really appear in the first section of the book. We meet Margaret, who's our heroine, her cousin Edith, her aunt Shaw, and then the kind of general idea of Uncle Shaw, also known as the general. And this is a family that uh, Margaret was sent to live with when she was just nine years old. And she's been living with them for 10 years. She's now 19. And we throw ourselves into the scene in the midst of preparations for Edith's wedding to a guy called Captain Lennox. So everybody is kind of just a bustle. They're all trying to get ready for it. They've got friends coming over for dinner for like these farewell meals. Edith's fallen asleep on the sofa. She's just worn out. She's just this like little cherub of a girl. She's like super pretty sleeping on the sofa. And Margaret is just like, okay, I guess it's nap time. Fine. Yeah. Whatever. And it's like eavesdropping. She's just sort of like caught up in it. It's a really great introduction into Margaret and her life and um, the poor relation I feel like we need to give this yes. like a name, this thing that you love. Like in, in Austin, Bronte, you really always glob onto is whenever a poor relation is sent to live um, with, you know, family members who have, you know, slightly more money and opportunity. And um, how are you supposed to deal with your life expectations? Yeah, afterwards. I don't understand. Exactly. <laughs> What's your normal after that? Like, where do you belong? Nowhere. The answer is nowhere. <laughs> You don't belong anywhere, Margaret. So uh, something that is really interesting about this chapter is that I actually think this is going to be a recurring theme. I'm just, I'm guessing. Mm. Um, It sets up the idea of marrying for love. So Edith is marrying for love while her mum, who was married to the general, is kind of like bemoaning the fact that she married a guy who she admired, but, you know, he had money. He was like a safe bet. He wasn't this like romantic ideal right and then the conversation turns to um these indian shawls that edith has oh my gosh these shawls i had to like google indian shawls i was like what are these i had to google indian shawls as well so i looked them up it's just like because of trade routes i guess yeah and they were these nice shawls, but they were expensive. That's the thing. So it would have been like a status symbol. And yeah. Mrs. Shaw is just like, yeah, I've given Edith all of my shawls. And everyone wants to see them. So they send Margaret upstairs to go and get them. And the reason I bring this up is because it gives us this opportunity to kind of hear a bit about Margaret's self-image. Mm-hmm. Which is very different to the Bronte heroines we've met so far. And also, I'd say, the majority of Austin's heroines. So we've got this little snippet that says, Occasionally she was turned round, she caught a glimpse of herself in the mirror over the chimney piece and smiled at her own appearance there, enjoying it as a child would do, with a quiet, pleased smile on her lips. She's feeling herself. And there is this... She is feeling herself. She is so, (laughs) like... She's just... A bit self-satisfied, isn't she? A little bit. And I don't I mean, know if okay. that is just... I think it's fine. It is fine. It's, and also, it, you know, it it's, says um, that it's justified. It does say it's justified because it says that the shawl does look better on her than it would look on Edith. So... Yeah. It's um interesting. It's an interest Like, 
yeah, it's very different for us, right? It's not it's something very that happens in Austin or Bronte. Charlotte Bronte so heroin. It is like, oh, like, this is a surprise. <laughs> yeah. Instead of like, I don't know, in Valette, she like sees herself in the mirror and she's like, oh my gosh, like who who is this woman? And it's like, it's you. But it's like, they're always so startled by their own reflection. Yeah. Where she's just like, yeah, hey. It's like, so and it's also a subtle comparison doing... to her and Edith as well, you know, like. Like, yeah, very you know, you I do mean, start off with like Edith is getting married and Edith is this beautiful like little princess napping on the, the couch. Yeah. Um. So I think your immediate response is to sort of compare Margaret to her like, oh, Margaret must be this just like this poor, you know, troll over here very, in the corner. But the Gaskell lets you know, like, she's not. She's very regal. She's beautiful. Yeah. And Edith is like this little child. And also she's referred to as being spoiled. Like mm-hmm. it's made very clear. You know, like. I guess, the value that Gaskell is putting on the two women. Yeah. So while Margaret is uh, kind of draped in all these shawls, a guy turns up called Henry Lennox, and he is the brother of the captain that Edith is going to marry. Also, worth noting, described as being the less good-looking brother. Right. Specific, specifically not a babe. From the get-go. <laughs> And he is just hitting on Margaret and Mags has nothing to do with it. She is just like, no, thank you. He's trying to coax out of her this conversation. He's asking her about her home because Edith's off to Corfu. Aunt Shaw's going off on her travels. The house is getting shut up. And Edith, um, Margaret, sorry, is going back home to a little place called Helston. So they, she's been yeah, living she's in London. Yeah, she's getting kicked out of the house. Yeah. I'm surprised that Aunt Shaw didn't keep her as a travelling companion or anything. It's strange. It's really strange. Uh, yeah. It, but, I mean, she does idealise Helston so much, as we find out. Hampshire is a lovely know, place. In the next breath, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and the last line of this chapter as well. So it goes from, like, it goes from Mags basically just pieing Henry in the face and just being like, I don't want to talk to you about my home anymore. Stop making fun of me. Like, leave me alone. Because he's like, oh, tell me all about it. Paint me a picture. And she's like, I'm not painting a picture. I'm telling you about a real place, idiot. Yeah. And then suddenly it's just after this evening, it was all bustle until the wedding was over. And then that is it. And then we're not in London anymore. And that is the end of that scene. That like very concise chapter. We don't get to go to the wedding. We don't get to go to the wedding. And that sucks for adaptations because... How good would it be to see like a fancy Victorian wedding? Those people knew oh, how yeah, to party. Absolutely. If I were rewriting this like for a TV adaptation, I probably would have set it like the first scene at the wedding. Yeah, actually, because you know you're just gonna get some good costumes. You're gonna get some good gossip. You're gonna get you're gonna get all you need, I think, in the wedding. But as written, I do like this sort of pre-wedding bit. Yeah, no, I I really like it, and I I just think it's um. It's snappy timing, which I appreciate. It's just like, yeah. cool, that's done. Like, I like the idea of authors being so, like, confident in saying, you don't need to see this. This isn't for you. Yeah. Let's move on to the that's next true. bit. It is a very confident move. So chapter two is called Roses and Thorns. I think that's also a very apt title because roses, very lovely, but they all have a thorn. And although going home to Helston is this kind of treasured idea and happy like life event for margaret it's not all what it seems is it true true 
She's and I am just like picturing this cottage that she's talked about, just like covered in roses. And like a Tennyson like... poem. <laughs> yeah. It's so picturesque. It's the best place on earth. So she's on the train with her dad. Her dad's looking like weary and tired and Mags isn't quite sure what's going on with that. And then they start, the book talks about the fact that her mum, Mrs. Hale, did not attend Edith's wedding, despite... Edith being the only child of Mrs. Hale's only sibling. Yep. And like, she just didn't go. And the reason she didn't go was because Mr. Hale couldn't buy her a new outfit. And this, this is like the very first thing. It really has like made me not like Mrs. Hale. Everything that happens after this, I'm just seeing it through a filter of you're a silly bitch. Ooh, wow. And I can't rough, help it. Rough I on can't help Mrs. it. Hale. Well, I mean, it's a big chunk of information to drop on a reader, right? It's just like immediately like, hey, this is a woman that is so shallow. She can't go to her only niece's, you know, wedding because she just, you know, she's not confident in her appearance. Um, I think they even say something like, you know, her sister would have gladly, like, had she known, she would have gladly, like, helped her out and would have, you know, lent her one of her dresses or bought her a new dress or, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot to drop. But I think what is so great about Gaskell's writing is that as the chapters go on and as we, like, peel back more layers, I think we're going to see more to Mrs. Hale's behavior and just really, just really, I don't know, just get in there with her character. Also... This bit of information just really rang true for me, to be honest, because while I don't have any sisters, my mother is one of four and they're all very close and they grew up together and um, they just have like the craziest fights (laughs) ever. Like I can't wrap my head around it. And um, I think it's just because they are so like close in age and they grew up and, you know, just kind of wanting what each other has so i don't know this just sort of like rang true to me to be honest yeah, i was like that, and like the wanting what each other has thing like gaskell sums it up there's this great quote where it says it was still mrs shaw's characteristic conclusion as she thought over her sister's lot married for love what can dearest mariah have to wish for in the world yeah. mrs hale if she spoke truth might have answered with a ready-made list a silver gray glacé silk a white chip bonnet Oh, dozens of things for the wedding and hundreds of things for the house. Yeah, grass is always greener. The grass is always greener. We then arrive in Helston and Margaret cannot help herself but come across as the teensiest patronising. Did you feel like that when she started talking about the people that live in the forest? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's like the... The queen is returning to her little forest the people. The forest queen. And like, yeah, they sound like fairy folk. They just sound like woodland creatures. And it, right? it gives you this really good contrast for later on in the book when she starts to meet all of the people in Milton. But then you're just reading all of these scenes in Helston and you're just like, oh my gosh, Margaret, like simmer down. What is this? <laughs> the line in it says, she took pride in her forest. Its people were her people. She, like, nurses their baby. She, like, reads to the poor. And it's always, like, she carried dainty messes to their sick. Like, she's separate from them. Right, right. They're her people, but they're not her people, you know? Like, 
Well, she's really delighting in this role of being like the vicar's daughter, right? Just yeah, exactly. Just, like she's got the standing within society, and she can be a busybody, and she can, you know, yeah. She just she's got like a lot, there, a lot of there power. There is some self importance there, isn't there? Yes, she has a position. She had a position in Aunt Shaw's house, and she has a position in Helston. She likes to know where she stands. Yeah, absolutely. We also find out a little bit that there's something going on with her brother, Fred. Mm-hmm. So he's not around. Margaret doesn't know exactly what's going on. Um, she's got some concerns that um, there was a mutiny, there was like an unpleasant business. She's only heard half the story from Aunt Shaw. So she's, you know, she really doesn't know what's going on with him. And she's kind of quite keen to know, but then she doesn't want to heap any more worry onto her parents because she spends most of this chapter worrying about her mum who isn't happy, worrying about her brother who isn't there and worrying about her dad who she can't figure out what he's stressed about other than perhaps yeah. he's worrying about her brother like she keeps being like yeah. oh dad's just stressed about Fred, he's he's stressed about Fred and so this yeah, it's really amazing trip home to this place that she loves above all others is just completely oppressive and exhausting and she's just come away from like a wedding and this really happy time and you know her friends and family of 10 years so I think she's got like a lot of emotions going on in this chapter yeah absolutely and there was a lot of expectation right you know so she had this very solid ending sort of with her aunt and her cousin like oh I was her companion or I was you know raised in their household for 10 years but after this 10 years is over, I'm going to go to Helston to my beloved, you know, place and be happy yeah. and have this role. And now she comes back and it's just, it's not what she thought it was going to be. No, not at all. Um, the last thing about this chapter is that we get this really funny description where basically Gaskell's like, oh yeah, so both of Margaret's parents were properly smoking hot. They were like really hot. And people just cannot get over the fact that margaret isn't as hot as her parents yeah (laughs) so like she's beautiful but in like a different way right um and it's described as being uh, a face too dignified and reserved for one so young yeah interesting and i i'm wondering you know what is it that's making her dignified and reserved? Is it that she's inherited this kind of persona from her dad? That comes up a lot in the story, that she's very much like her father and not like her mother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Gaskell herself didn't have a relationship with her mum, so I'm wondering if that's got, you know, anything to do with this whole being more like your father because you don't actually have a mother figure there. Possibly, mm-hmm. but she Maybe. does She does have a lot of mother figures in her life. I will say that uh, much. But, um, yeah, you know... It is interesting, though. And also being raised by your aunt and knowing that you can't get used to that lifestyle because it's not yours. Right. It's not permanent. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Chapter three, we have an appearance from a very special friend from chapter one. Who do you think that is? Oh, God. I mean, it's Henry Lennox. He said he would be back. He warned us. He did say he would be back. And that is one of the first things he says to Margaret. He says didn't I say I would come? And he said it in like a low kind of like sexy voice. I, I've i just said that as if what I said was low and sexy and that wasn't. <laughs> if I was, it, you know. Try it again. Try it again, Hannah. I can't. I've been told I sound like Daniel Craig. I don't want to, <laughs> don't want to sex it's not it up a bad too thing. much. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> do, 
Didn't I say it would come? Oh, hello. Beep that hello. out. Okay. <laughs> but Margaret is just like on her front door, like, oh my God, Henry, leave me alone. Yeah. What are you doing? I mean, first of all, Don't she's like, to oh, me like that. oh, you. Like, why are you yeah. here? And then... It, Not a fan. Because we get all of the different point of views, we get Henry's point of view about, you know, Helston's perhaps a little more rundown than he would have liked. He thought that she yeah. was romanticising it a little bit when she was saying that, you know, she just had this very quiet home life. They don't ride anywhere. They don't keep much society. And then he gets there and he's like, oh, she was not lying. And he can't help right. but be a little bit disappointed. And you're like, Henry, come on. She told you she wasn't trying to paint a picture. She's trying to be upfront. Sort yourself out. He, He's just not taking the things that she says at face value. No, not at all. He's like... Yeah, he, he's fitting them to this, like, ideal Margaret that he's got in his head. Now, because mm-hmm. no one knew he was coming, her mum, flappy bird that she is, is stressed out. She's like, oh, we've only got cold ham. That's awful. We've only got cold ham. He's going to expect to be asked to yeah. lunch. What are we going to do with him until then? So Margaret says, I'll take him sketching. I mean, I'm going to take Mrs. Hale's side oh, on this one. Oh, really? You can take Mrs. Hale's side? What a surprise. I mean, come on. I cannot handle an unexpected guest. I have to feed you. My house has to be clean. I have to have proper entertainment, like already in my mind before you get here. Like if you just show up at my doorstep, I will freak out. I feel like Aunt Shaw would open that door and be like, oh my gosh, come on in. And yeah, you know, it's the servant's ironing day. They've got chores. It is the money thing. It is the money thing. Yeah, but it just yeah, it comes back. Keeping up appearances. It comes back to Mrs. Hale's life expectations not being met and the shame that she feels about it, and that is what is stopping absolutely. her from being happy. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I totally get it. It's not like she can't just let people take her as she comes. She's she's trying to put a front on you know. Fine, Lauren. <laughs> Mrs. Hale married for love. She married a raven-haired preacher with prospects and he didn't do what he was going to do and now she's bitter and disappointed and she's only got cold ham for lunch. Well, she really thought he was going to set the Church of England on fire. I mean, he was a great preacher. He was very charismatic. He was very handsome. It seemed like he was going places. Just, you know, it sucks that his promise was just never fulfilled. But we will get into that. She can't let it go. She can't. So she makes Margaret take Henry out for the day, for, you know, the morning. And they go off and they do some sketching. And Margaret's like, oh, look at this quaint little old man. Like, I'll go and talk to him. And then Henry, like, sketches her and sketches her little bonnet on hanging on a tree. And then they come back. And Can I just say, if that part made me, like, so happy that I was not alive during Victorian times. So that you didn't like, have to go like, on sketching dates. Yes, I was just like, oh my God, can I think of anything more insufferable than a sketching date? (laughs) I can't. Henry loved it. Henry is all about it. Ugh, he would. He's the worst. Like, he's not a John Thorpe, but he's like a John Thorpe. He doesn't chat as much as John Thorpe. That's true. He doesn't listen. He's not as nefarious. John Thorpe's great. Ugh. So, they have a very nice lunch. Cold cuts are fine. Lovely. Henry loves it. Chats nicely with her dad. They get on, you know, very pleasantly. And then they all decide mm-hmm. to go and eat pears in the garden for pudding. And while the grown-ups are kind of sitting down eating their pears, Mags and Henry go for a stroll around the garden. And he just drops a bomb on her. He just proposes. 
out of the blue. Yeah. It's just like, oh, okay, cool. And obviously for the readers, we see it coming, but Mags is just like, oh my gosh, what is this? Now, there is a tiny bit of the proposal, like the tiniest bit, that makes me think of Mr. Darcy. (laughs) Now read this bit out. Read read the actually the proposal out, because it is interesting, actually. So he says... I've been hoping for these last three months to find you regretting London and London friends a little enough to make you listen more kindly to one who has not much offer to offer. It's true. Nothing but prospects in the future, but who does love you, Margaret, almost in spite of himself. Maybe. What is it with guys you in know. the olden day thinking that a good chat up line is saying like, oh, mate, I shouldn't be into this because you're poor, but I am. <laughs> But I am. So yeah, that last bit, the worst. But also like, hey, I kind of like gave you some distance just, you know, hoping like he would miss London and get desperate enough. Yeah. (laughs) No, I don't think that's what he means. I don't think Henry's like entirely bad. I think he just likes someone that isn't interested. Yeah, I don't think he's entirely bad. I just think it's just, yeah, he's And also someone, um, was it Jennifer on the Facebook group was saying like, is he a bad lad? I'm getting bad lad vibes. I'm not getting bad lad vibes from Henry. I'm getting sad lad vibes from Henry. Yeah, he (laughs) He is is a sad sad lad. lad. TM. Absolutely. (laughs) So Margaret is just straight away like, mate, I don't think about you like that. And he's like, do you think about other people like that? She says, no. He's like, well, okay, well, in time, do you think you could think about me like that? And she's like, no, <laughs> I will never think about you like that. Please don't ever bring it up again. And then her dad appears and then Henry's just like chatting away, fine, like talking about his job, talking about his prospects. And he gets a little bit mean, and, you know, talks about London being better or I've forgotten. I think, you know, he just... He's kind of not quite handling it the way Margaret would have liked him to. And then she can't help but pull a face at him because she's just like, you've just made this super holy, important proposal, been rejected. And now you just stood there chatting to my dad like nothing happened. Yeah. That's weird. Just like it was casual. Yeah, exactly. And then he sees that face. And instead of thinking, wow, I've really put my foot in it. He's like, cool, Margaret, I fancy you even more. (laughs) like he cannot take no for an answer this guy i can't wait to propose again so then the next chapter doubts and difficulties just it keeps going with this theme uh margaret's just sat doing a little tapestry you know thinking about it she is kind of mulling over the fact that men and women are very different she um is you know she had this instinct it wasn't that she thought about saying that it's just her gut was saying Anything but refusing him is impossible, you know? Mm -hmm. She just couldn't, she couldn't have gone through with it at all. And, you know, the whole thing about him being so quick to recover, it makes me think of, like, Marianne Dashwood and how she didn't like guys who were quite, you know, reserved. So being able to move on like that feels kind of like a Brandon or, uh, like, Edward thing to be able to do. Mm Mm-hmm. Now that I'm wanted... saying I actually don't think that, let's cut that section. <laughs> I think it's an interesting point, though, of, like, uh, where she wants him to be, like, she show more reaction. She wants him to care more. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like he cares, does it? No. I mean, I guess if you're, if you're young and, like, she's never been in love, it seems like 
to me, what's interesting about Margaret at this point is that she's not even like thinking about it as she should. She's 19. I'm assuming that she's already been out in society with her cousin Edith before Edith got married, you know? And you know, I'm Um, surprised that her mom hasn't brought it up. Like you've had 10 years in London to find a husband. Like, right. Her mom hasn't brought it up. Her aunt Shaw never seemed to bring it up. Like Edith is just, sorry, Margaret is just kind of there. Like she's at a wedding. There would have been people there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so But maybe Aunt Shaw thought that she would marry Henry. Maybe, maybe Edith thought that she would marry Henry. Yeah, for sure. I it just it's, it's kind of interesting to me that she's just not even really thinking about it because this yeah. is really how you secure yourself a future. But also um, she's it's not just girl. that she's not thinking about it, it's that she's almost like disgusted by the fact that someone's yeah. interested in her in that way. Like she has this guilt. Of being a woman without even realizing it. Exactly. And then, so she has these ideas of love, which are, you know, which we haven't really talked about, but like sort of the absence of them, I'm guessing they're very immature. It's sort of like her response to, um, to Henry. It's like, well, he should be acting this way. Like, this is the way he should be, you know, he should be acting because this is my idea of love. Yeah. People should behave. She hasn't really like formed it. They should be behaving. Yeah. 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 So while she's thinking about all of this, you know, she's doing that tapestry and her dad says, hey, how important is that tapestry? Let me tell you, it's not important at all because she just drops it on the floor and scurries off to her dad's office or wherever he is. And he just drops a bombshell bigger than the Henry bombshell and announces, I am going to leave Helston. I think my note was just like, what is going on with all the men in Margaret's life? Yeah, they're all so flaky and annoying. But, just, uh, you know, I'm worst. team Mr. Hale. Like, if it's a team Mrs. and Mr., I'm team Mr. Hale. I do think it's pretty I'm... rough that he says, I am going to leave Helston and not we are going yes. to leave Helston. Like, from I the I am going to leave Helston. Oh, by the way, I forgot I have this family. So, yeah, we are all going to leave Helston. He doesn't forget he has the family. It's weighing on his mind. So the reason that they're leaving, before Lauren starts mouthing off about Mr. Hale, the reason that they're leaving is that Mr. Hale no longer can be a minister in the Church of England. He cannot do it. He would think it hypocritical to remain um, a minister. And he he's really, really, really struggling with it. He clarifies... Uh, that he has no doubts as to religion, not the slightest injury to that. And then he mm-hmm. uh, it kind of talks about his effort to quench my smouldering doubt by the authority of the church. But he doesn't really go into detail about why he's leaving the church. He talks a lot about the early martyrs, how he can't in good conscience take his bow um, again at being a member of the church. And that's about it. He does we do get this comment that it's actually, it's quite funny because Mrs. Hale has been pushing him to try and get promotion into a bigger parish so that he gets more money so that lifestyle can improve. And then when the Bishop says to him, I've got this better living for you, you'll have more money and your lifestyle will improve, but you have to swear your oath again. That's when he's like, Oh, I actually can't because my views have changed. Yeah. And this is, this is a big deal. I respect his like his crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to be clear, it is yeah, not with his faith. It's with the institution. It's with the establishment, which is a great parallel to like you know t- 
to what's happening in this book, like workers versus the own, like the mill owners and that sort of thing. Um, so I have respect for that. But I mean, I do also appreciate Mrs. Hale's problem here <laughs> because of, you know, just how I think Louise Logan actually brought it up in the Facebook group. Just how powerless you were as a woman. I mean, she did marry this man who had a lot of promise. And mm-hmm. I think she really thought her life was going to go one direction. And then he sort of he fails to deliver, right? He fails to deliver in his career and therefore fails to deliver to his family. And um, that's a, that's a big disappointment. And I just it's I hard. It's just hard because being... she has no career. She has no outlet. Like it's like it's you're it's completely like her marriage is like her thing, right? Like this is. No, nah, I think she's a weak past. I think she's a weak personality. I just I have a lot of sympathy for it because also my circumstances are reduced right now as well. So I'm not working full time, and I am dependent on my husband's salary. I feel like my circumstances are reduced. It's very Victorian. <laughs> I know, (laughs) but it's true. You know, we were in one income bracket and now that I'm working part time, we are definitely in another. And um, I'm more caught up in my husband's career than I was when I had my You would still go to your niece's wedding. Yeah, and I would like, still go to my niece's wedding. She just like sits in the house and is like, it's incessant. It is incessant. And we will get to it in the next chapter. But she just does not stop. It's just like... I just at, think this, mess- at any this, point, this at any point marriage she has been festering for a long time and there's not a lot of options for her. Do you know what I mean? It's like she can't get up and like divorce. There's no, not a lot of options get up and divorce, for this woman. And so she doesn't have a lot of options. And instead of making the best of it, she is just nattering on all the time. Yeah. Some people don't have that capacity, though. Exactly. Just, just, yeah, that that's, is the thing. That's what Some I'm people saying. don't have that capacity. That's, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I don't like that about her. Like, I think she's an annoying character. I hope she dies in chapter 11. I don't have to read about her anymore. Well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he also announces, he says that he's going to move the family, including his annoying wife, to Milton Norton mm-hmm. in Darkshire because I know no one there and no one knows Helston and no one can talk to me about it. Because this is something that's really hard for him and it's a big yeah. deal. Ugh. But again, it's just like, well, we're moving there because I, you know, I want to be nameless. I, it just, it's like, ugh, it's cowardly. He, he is leaving the church in Victorian England. He's stepping down as a minister. Like it is going to be so hard for him to, like the whole family, even if they stay, stayed in Helston and he did that, if he said to them, we don't have the option to move, like we'll stay here. She wouldn't yeah. have been happy with that either. She wouldn't be happy living in a town where people are talking about it. It's true. I mean, there's not really a good option here to be honest it's just the fact that he has kept this all to himself he's like unloading it on his family all at once i'm like defending him but then the very next thing that he does is basically say to margaret i don't have the balls to or i don't have the courage to tell your mum about this whole situation so actually could you go and do it <laughs> i mean yeah he's the I mean, that's the worst He's so stressed out about it. 
I just... He's got a son living in another country who's like mutinied and can't come back to the country without getting arrested. He's sending him money. He's got no independent income aside from like the £100 a year left over. They're going to massively reduce their circumstances. They have to move across the country. He has to go from being a pillar of the community to being like a schoolmaster for strangers. He's mm-hmm. like relying on the friends of his son's godfather to like sort him out with a job. This, this, like, come on. It's a lot. I mean, it's a lot. But like, I mean, come on, like, talk to your wife. Like, just have one conversation. Don't unload this on your teenage daughter. Talk talk to the woman who says in chapter five, the next chapter, the very next chapter, I dare say if he had told me about his doubts at the first, I could have nipped them in the bud. Who the hell are you? Who the hell are you, Mrs. Hale? Maybe. Maybe she could have. Every time Margaret's, like, trying to tell her... So the next day, Mr. Hale goes off on a walk so that Margaret can, like, tell her mum what's going on. And her mum is just like, I don't understand. No, that doesn't make any sense. No, you must be mistaken. Well, yeah, of course. If someone, like, came up to me and was like, hey, by the way, your husband has decided, like, you're moving and cross country. And she uh, wanted to move. I'd be like, what? Uh, Why didn't he talk to me about this? She's been complaining about Houston the whole book. She has, it's true. I did skip over the bit where Mags has that really funny nightmare. I just, I've got to say, for anyone, in case you didn't read the book, she has a nightmare that night. She's like so stressed about all of this family stuff that she starts having crazy dreams. And then in her dream, Henry Lennox climbs a tree, tries to get a bonnet, falls out of the tree and dies. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Not enough dreams in Austin books. No. Are there any? Ooh, good question. I'm coming up short. I'll throw that one out to the listeners. You know what is also scandalous? How snobby Mags and Miss, uh, Mrs. Hale are when they start talking about tradespeople. Oh, yeah. So when they get together, they Mrs. really... Hale's, yeah, they're just like... <laughs> um, Mrs. Hale is so concerned about what her neighbours are going to be like in Milton Norton. And then Mags has to point out to her, like, our closest neighbours literally make coaches. And her mum's like, well, making really cool coaches for, like, all of the people to travel around lovely Hampshire in is great. I'd rather hang out with them than hang out with some people that make cotton, who even wears cotton. It's all about <laughs> linen. And it's just like, Mrs. Hale, stop trying to She's shit. decided to hate it before she's even left the house. She's got a flappy mouth, Lauren. <laughs> All right, chapter six, farewell. Bye-bye. Um, bye-bye, Helston. Gotta go, fairy people. You were, you were great. You were beautiful. Um, this is kind of sad. The family can only afford to take one servant along with them. So, um, it's going to be Dixon, who's been with them forever, actually was with the mother, correct like in her childhood so she was with um when she was a poor but pretty miss beresford yes so um dixon is coming along with them and uh bye-bye charlotte sorry you were great charlotte seems like she would have been nicer (laughs) (laughs) i think charlotte probably would would have been the more effective decision i don't know but you know dixon you gotta have some loyalty also dixon just um trash talks the dad like a lot yeah she does she's She's horrified by this whole situation and it gets to the point where mags just has to be like dixon shut the f up well again i think it's just like you know 
Mrs. Hale and Dixon had a lot of expectations for Mr. Hale and he has not fulfilled any of them. It just... Dixon, like, she sees herself uh, as her protector, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. Um... So yeah, uh, Mags walks around Helston for the final time and it's just like everyone's depressed and it's all, it's just a sad chapter. Um, kind of yeah. kind of more, like an extension of that chapter five, honestly. Um, there was a thing, I, I don't know why I thought of this when I was reading that chapter, <laughs> but I was thinking about Mad Men. I think it's season one. Did you watch Mad Men? I watched all of it. Okay. I love, I've actually seen it twice. I really liked it. Oh, wow. Um, so that scene when, um, it's like after Peggy has the baby and she's in the hospital and Don goes and finds her after she's just mm-hmm. like disappeared. And he's just like telling her to get back to work and like move on with her life. And he says, you know, this never happened. It'll shock you how much this never happened. I think about that a lot, that line a lot, because it's just like things change so quickly. And that was just the sense yeah. of this chapter. It's just like, you really think your life is going to be one way and you know, you have this all planned out. Like Mag said, this whole plan to return to Helston from London, like just like queen of the forest. And she's there <laughs> for like a day and her life just turns upside down. And so she's just kind of coming to grips with this. Like she was there for like five months, was it five months. Well, it feels like a day. Yeah. Well, <laughs> because you know. Henry's like, Oh, I haven't seen you in three that's months. Right, that's it right. It feels, it like, feels a day, like a day. Because Gaskell's writing feels like a day. And then there's these like little bits of dialogue and it's been like, Oh, you've been away for three months. Yeah. That's true. With the village, but it just, the forest village people. It just changed. So yeah, I, I do like that you have this moment where she is just reflecting on all of this change so suddenly um also it makes her she starts to see the house quite differently doesn't she yeah she does Oof, it's rough yeah, it's so sad it's sad like everything's in boxes and you know she doesn't everything on the outside looks as it is and then in in her actual home it's just moving is hard yeah. too even if you want to move like it just is it's like sad it's this moment where you have to like you have to reflect you have to look at, at all your stuff like what do you need what do you you know what do you need to throw away yeah. and oh there's all that anxiety that mrs hale has like how do we even do a move cross country and she can't even yeah. deal with it it's just like margaret you've got margaret to deal with is it. doing a yeah. little bit so like neither yeah. of her parents can deal with it like her father can't handle you know communicating with her mother her mother can't handle this move Life. Like, Margaret is just <laughs> doing all of the work. So as much... What did they do for the 10 years she was away? Unclear. Unclear. <laughs> I want to know. Unclear. <laughs> I did I did have that down as a note, though. Like, oh, my God. Like, how, how are these people alive? How did this, how did this work? Um, so, yeah, I mean, we are down on Margaret quite a bit, but we do have to give her some credit for, you know, just really being a stand-up gal and taking care of everything i love and hate her yes like i i think she's she's such a great character she's like so interestingly written and i think a lot of these things that being kind of set out as her flaws now is so that she can have a story yes exactly so she can grow and And change it is is interesting to have a because like come on like jane Eyre and um oh what's lucy snow like they, they they don't do anything wrong do they well, I would say Jane Eyre. They're perfect. Yeah. L- Lucy's a little different. Like Jane Eyre's yeah. a strawberry child. Okay. We, we've not talked about that. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's just quite nice to have this character who 
she is very complex. I've got to say, I think she might be more complex than a lot of Austin's heroines. Yeah, absolutely. Like a lot more. Yeah. Uh, she reminds me a lot of Emma. I get a lot of Emma from yeah from Mags, which I think is interesting because their circumstances are so different. Yeah, absolutely. I know people have like compared her to um, Anne Elliot, but I do um, feel more Emma for sure. I don't think she's as passive. Definitely not. She's like definitely. She's not. got the organizational thing going on, but yeah, I don't know. Mm, yeah, I'd say she's like Emma in reduced circumstances rather than yeah um, i think you're right would be yeah absolutely i get that and thing but it doesn't it's not quite right it's the right shoe but the wrong foot yeah yeah now um chapter seven new scenes and faces so yeah they get to milton oh my god it's smoky it's shit. and gray <laughs> and it's shit <laughs> it's miserable oh my god and mr hale like hasn't even picked a damn house yet just like just nothing is done he can't go on zoopla it's not like he can't go on like rightmove.com i guess that's true even if he could though he he wouldn't have he would have just like let margaret do it i mean he really annoys me because he just reminds me of an old boss of mine who was like a nice guy (laughs) who like i had great conversations with who i thought was a great person but just like a really shitty boss and just like you know we'd have these great meetings and then we'd be off to another meeting with a client and he'd be like, oh, by the way, totally meant to tell you in the like 930 meeting this morning, like, we're not going to do this, 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 and this, and this, and we've got to like revoke this contract. Okay. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> so are you going to tell the client this? Like, oh, no, no. I want you to tell the client this. Okay. Yeah. That's a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I hate you, but I like you. I just don't want to work for you. I like you as a person. You're a terrible boss. Yes. So this is my feeling on Mr. Hale. So Margaret's like, again, very sensible. Like, okay, like, I'm going to get this under control. I'm going to help find She's like, this is our budget. Yeah. This is what we can afford. Everywhere's shit. (laughs) Let's pick the least shit place. The least shit place, which happens to be the house with the hideous wallpaper. Yeah, but it's so, isn't it? Yeah, okay, wait, yeah. Yeah, they kind of circle back to it. Like, at first, she's just like, no, this won't do. And then they see well, everything they don't have else. they any other options. And they just really don't have any other options. And they're like, no, okay, we will have to go with the house that looks terrible. But, like, maybe we can get the landlord to repaper it. And we can make do. Yeah. And-, and he's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Like, nope. This is, uh... I love that wallpaper. <laughs> uh, it's funny. Isabel was like, what do we think that wallpaper looked like? Like, one that, could okay. only... Someone design the wallpaper. Please. I bet it was like, what's the worst color for, like, wallpaper? I don't like, um, like, moths. I don't know what color that uh, is. Move. Like, I don't like a deep maroon once i saw this deep maroon like on a house that i just hated we had a hallway that was painted cherry blossom pink what because yeah it was awful and like a weird kind of paisley floral um mauve like dark green blue patterned carpet and like dark wood in the 90s i hate dark on the walls just yeah i can I can I tell you a very quick but funny story about wallpaper? Yeah, though? sure. 
this is so embarrassing. When I was 14 years old, I used to go on um, this Lord of the Rings, like, forum. Mm -hmm. And I lied to people i told them that i worked for a wallpaper design company and that we were working on the lord of the rings range and like what ideas did people what and then like a week later after having this like whole fake conversation i was just like hey guys my account got hacked super weird oh my god what kind of uh suggestions (laughs) did people have people wanted like um wallpaper which was like the ring text just like on it okay just as a pattern people wanted like arched columns like elven style so that your house would look like you were in this like little elven temple like looking at the trees and stuff oh my god that's hilarious like all like like watercolor paintings i was a child you know i didn't know anything about wallpaper production sure i was just like yeah my boss just thinks we should like talk to you guys go go to the fans you know go to the fans I'm that's insane. hilarious. That's so random. Well, um, for wallpaper. more wallpaper talk, actually go to our Twitter, um, NS Bonnets tag. I've actually uploaded a great article from the Victoria and Albert Museum about wallpaper and literary references to wallpaper, including oh, Elizabeth cool. Gaskell. Yeah. So if we want to like further the wallpaper discussion, um, I wrote the article. Anyway. <laughs> pretended to be an expert (laughs) um thornton so yeah thornton that's the big thing that happens in this chapter is that margaret meets thornton for the first time yeah she kind of like comes back from making inquiries and he's just in there isn't he he's just like in the room waiting for her dad yeah he's just in there he's waiting for mr hale mr hale is uh gone like out you know to go ahead and secure this house so he's left and uh margaret doesn't know how long he's gonna be gone so she's stuck entertaining thornton and um i mean right away it like just kind of like kicks off between these two i like what he says um she seemed to exude some kind of authority over him at once yeah Ooh, she's so regal (laughs) margaret is she's so regal and stately and queenly with her indian in the next in the next adaptation she has to be played by a tall woman I like the actress in the adaptation that the BBC did. I actually am not really feeling it. Oh, this is this is new not for feeling us. It. Not feeling it. I mean, we'll discuss it in a different episode, but um, I don't know. I just I, Margaret's got to be tall. She's got to be imposing. Hmm. I don't uh-huh. know. Uh, I need someone else. I'll do. Um, um, I need someone with like a Haley Atwell air. You I know? do not know who that is. Well. That is your loss. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> these two um, are like stuck having that like sort of awkward conversation. We don't know when Mr. Hale's going to be back. I don't know. Should, how do I entertain you? Let me just like talk at you kind of situation. But how good is it that we get Thornton's point of view? Like this yeah. is so unlike Austin or the Brontes, like just straight off the bat. They meet, and from the first minute, because you're getting both point of views, you know they both like each other. Yeah, exactly. And they don't Um, know what it is. Yeah, yeah. They're not really sure yet what the deal is. Um, Also, another note that I wrote down from this chapter is that Thornton does not easily converse with people he does not know. Yeah, so far so Darcy. 
Yeah, he's having a little bit of dif- difficulty um, with this. Totally get it. Uh, he, he finally shoves him. off. He wants to better himself. It's so nice. It's he so does. Admirable. I mean, I love that about Thornton. He's great. Um, he kind of finally is like, listen, I, I'm going to come back later. You know. Yeah. I'm a busy man. I got stuff to do. And got some um, cotton to make. <laughs> got some cotton to make. And Margaret later describes him to her mother as not quite a gentleman. Rude. She doesn't really, yeah, know what to make of, of that guy. But he is a gentleman because he goes out, makes some inquiries, finds out which house um, the Hales have settled on. And he makes sure that the landlord, um, you know, is going to take care of these guys. And he makes Gets sure that the, the wallpaper, yeah, the wallpaper is changed. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is like. I'd say that's on a level with rescuing Lydia's reputation when she runs off with Wickham. Yeah, yeah, it's it's around there. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. It's nice. I feel like it's the first of many things to come. I don't know that for sure, but I, it feels that way. But they And they don't know, do they? That's the thing as well. They don't, know. He's just like quietly in the background, trying to make yeah. them feel more comfortable and more at home. And, uh yeah, I know. Thorn- Thornton and Margaret are just these two people that are, that they can hear each other, but they don't know what the other one is saying. There's so much coming in between them, like yeah. all of these preconceptions or, you know, like the faces people pull without realising or like how you don't know how your body language is coming across and then getting to see, you know, what the other person's thinking to like just tiny minuscule things and like reading so much into it like this isn't a new thing that we do now like people were doing it in victorian times yeah like just obsessing over like the tiniest look oh for sure now chapter eight homesickness homesickness so yeah my first note on this chapter was actually oh my god did the fog really creep into your house like that because I think like that's the first chapter she's describing, like opening the windows and getting this house ready and cleaning the house and like just this yellow fog like creeping into the house. Well, is it is it smog? Or smog, yeah, yeah. Just like how disgusting it is. Um. So yeah, Margaret is not enjoying Milton. Um. No. Very very different than Helston. Very very different than London. Um. Not only just physically. But it's the attitudes, right, of the people. So, yeah. you know, in the South, she's well, got they're this... not magical woodland creatures, no, are no, they? No, no, she doesn't know everyone. She's not, like, she doesn't have any, like, relationships with anyone. No one's stopping to talk to her. Like, you know, it's time is money. It's like the North is busy. People are going off to work. They've got stuff to yeah. do. They're keeping to themselves. Um, yeah. You know, they're not kind of, like chill and slow and chewing chewing a bit of straw and leaning on a woodland fence and exactly doffing their caps at her as she strolls by with a basket full of apples for a crippled boy exactly <laughs> yeah so poor margaret yeah, poor margaret she's she's miserable um her parents are miserable her dad is like maybe we should have just gone to wales <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah like Wales is lovely. I mean, you know, didn't know that was an option, Mr. Hale. You should have discussed it with everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe they would have, like, suggested going to Wales. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, we're here or now. you could go, like, right down to, you know, Cornwall. That's yeah. pretty far away. Cornwall's pretty great. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, to make matters worse, like, Edith sends a letter from Greece and just, like, my life is Mm -hmm. beautiful and perfect and everything's wonderful and I love my husband. I love coffee. Yeah. (laughs) My life is great. How's yours? (laughs) Shit. Yeah, pretty shit. Um, Mr. Hale, though, is taking pleasure in getting to know Mr. Thornton. Really, this is like a love story between Thornton and Hale in the beginning. This is a proto I love you, man. Yeah, these guys have totally hit it off. Um, Thornton is his favorite student. Um, and I totally get it. Like, I, I think, you know, he's he's such an admirable guy, right? Like, he left um, school when he was, I guess, 14 or 15. He had to take care of his family. And now that he's settled and he's successful, he is going back to read the classics and, doesn't he? Um, he learn. explains all this, doesn't he, to Margaret? And there's this moment he almost doesn't tell them. He's like, yeah. maybe this is too personal. But then he's like, yeah, my dad died when I was a kid. I had to look after my family. Like, I didn't have the luxury of learning all of this stuff that, frankly, wasn't useful to me then. Like, right. I had to provide for my mum and my sister. And like, my mum, yeah, she made you know, she made me like save a cut of my uh, earnings. When, because he worked in a shop, mm-hmm. you know, he's very much telling them the story of a self-made, like he's a self-made man. He's telling us as well, but I just love that moment where he's like, maybe I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't tell them this. Because he's, yeah. he's a, yeah, he's he, a yeah. proud guy, you know, like. Yeah, he's really proud. And Mr. Hale just like really like just takes him on immediately like a son. Like yeah. just really loves this guy. And um, yeah, the big thing that happens in chapter eight um. Well, there's two actually interesting things. Maggie is tasked with the um, job of finding another servant. Yeah. Not going so well. No one wants to be a servant. No, why would they? Why would they? This is like, you know, going into service has totally lost its shine. No one wants to work, you know, for a family. They want to work for one of the mill owners. You know, they want to have a little bit more freedom or opportunity to make their own fortune. I just had a job interview this week and so I spent like hours looking online about um, you know questions you should ask your employer because I always fall down on that bit mm-hmm. and it's you know this idea of like finding somewhere that's the right fit for you like why, well, why do I want to work for your company and all of these women that they're interviewing are just like I'm not sure about your family you know you're strangers <laughs> yeah, exactly. you don't know anyone here where have you come from like what's what's his story like this guy this private tutor like uh, like yeah like who are you right yeah and yeah i mean this totally gets mags because you know again she's used to being the queen of the forest like why wouldn't you want to work for me and my family oh my god i gave an apple to a cripple child a huge knock to her you know self-esteem um also she makes a friend so that's good (laughs) finally with Bates. So yeah, she meets Bessie, a uh, young girl. So while she's picking flowers one day, she sees this young girl um, who is ill and she gives her some flowers and has a conversation with her father, Nicholas, who we will refer to probably as Bates because he is played yeah, by Bates. Bates in the miniseries. And um, Bates from Downton Abbey. They also have this nice sort of like North and South interaction where Margaret's like, oh, I'm going to visit you. I'm going to be your friend now. Like, let me come by your house. And Nicholas is like, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who are you? I don't let strangers in my house. Yeah, it's like, again, like, who are you? I don't know you. 
actually, because the, this interaction's interesting because we've got this whole paragraph where Margaret is like walking through the town. And she's just not used to how coarse everyone is. Mm-hmm. And just like shouting and like heckling, calling names and guys are like, hey, darling, give us a smile. And then she, this that's how she meets Nicholas. Yeah. It's because he he says something to her and she just kind of smiles at him. She's like, oh, he doesn't, she's like getting used to it. She knows he doesn't mean any harm. And then these women are like, oh, I like your dress. And she's like, oh, cheers, thanks. Yeah, it's nice. Um, and then when she's out on this walk, she kind of recognises him. And they've had like a few encounters where they, they've never introduced themselves or anything, but they'll just smile at each other. Mm-hmm. And like that kind of makes her feel at home. So I think when she then sees him with his daughter, it's just like, oh, okay, this, this guy's like, he's fine. Like he can be the person that I befriend. He can be my project. Yeah. Yeah, he can be my project. She can be my project as well. Because I think, you know, this throws her back into that vicar's daughter role. Yes. Too. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. she can go to their house and she can, you know. Give them dainty give messages. Bit of charity. Yeah. And um, this is a role that she's comfortable with. So. I'm sure like. So yeah, I'm she's sure found she a friend. Well, she's found a project. But... Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. But it's just old habits, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, chapter nine, dressing for tea. Dressing for tea. Mr. Hale has another bomb that he has to drop. And that is that he has invited Thornton over for tea. And Mrs. Hale's not having it. Again, it's like, are we prepared to even host anyone here? Like, look at our reduced circumstances. Yeah. I'm so embarrassed. I don't want anyone in this house. Um, but you know, whatever, it's happening. Like, she has no control over her existence. So that's just that. (laughs) (laughs) margaret's like yeah whatever i mean i guess he's okay basically oh admit admit max he's the man of your dreams (laughs) now meanwhile over at uh thornton's house he's telling his mother a little bit about mr hale and his family and that he's going over there for tea and um as soon as she hears that mr hale has a daughter she is just like do not do get not trapped by that little missy. <laughs> like, no yeah. way. That's the only thing I care about. There is a really funny thing um, going on at Mr. Thornton's house, which is when he walks in, it's like, what's that sound he can hear? Oh, it's his sister playing the piano really badly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, I, oh, cool. I kind of like Thornton's sister. I think it's... Yeah, it's. I really liked it because it's. It's not just Thornton. Like you've got this family who are like, cool, we're established now, but we don't have. I guess Austin would put it. They don't have the. Um, his sister's not accomplished. But right. She's trying to get there, and so she's trying to do these things. She's trying to put on this. It's a costume, isn't it? She's trying to be this person that she isn't, and right. so, but she's a bit old to learn. So she well, will she's, sit in the house and play the piano. Like- She's trapped between two worlds too, right? I mean, yeah. her wealth has put her in a certain position. Her mother, her mother's mindset is still in an, a different world. You know, like it's, yeah. this girl's sort of caught in like no man's land. I think it's time to bring back an old hashtag. New money, new problems. New money, new problems. Absolutely. New money, new problems. <laughs> if you ever need Absolutely. to talk about Thornton's family and like their issues with making it through the world, you can use that hashtag. New yeah, money, new that problems. sounds good. Perfect. Um, chapter 10, wrought iron and gold. Now this, this chapter is like where it all kicks off. 
Yeah. And I feel like we could have an entire episode on chapter 10. But really, (laughs) I think chapter 10, like, sets up the entire book. Like, all of the issues, like, that come to head here, that's really the whole book. Yeah. Um, It's just, it's a great piece of, it's a great piece of writing. It's the best chapter, I think, so far. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's definitely well, well done, Gaskell. Yeah. It's really well paced. Yeah, um, getting it from both perspectives. I just realised that the story that Thornton tells them about his childhood actually it happens in this chapter, doesn't it? It, so, it happens here. Yeah. yeah, it does. Thornton comes to tea is the alternate title for this chapter. Yeah, <laughs> and um, Maggie gets it. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like. I mean, they're off to a good start at first. I mean, they're kind of like eyeing each other. Thornton's like, oh, I love Maggie's relationship with her father. Like, I wish we had the same rapport. Like, I think. Weird. And I think he's like, you know, we we can get there. Like, we have this this guy in common. Like, I think we can get there. And I think he's really like, he's really eyeing her. She's just like, all like, oh, he he looks nice when he smiles. Yeah. Oh, look at his face. He's got that like whole face lighting up smile thing, doesn't he? He does. So, you know, things are kind of off to a good start. And then they start talking politics, basically. (laughs) Uh, And it all goes wrong. So, um, like we've said, Thornton has this very, you know, admirable backstory. He's a very proud man. Um, He's proud to be successful. He's proud to be Northern, um, which he sees as this, you know, Milton... And the North as this great place of opportunity and um, a place where all of these captains of industry live, right? Like he's like, yeah. I, I admire all of these other men because they are not like Southern men. Like they don't just like sit on their asses and read yeah. poetry and live off their families. Like they're actually like building and inventing and innovating. And that that's what, who I want to be. Yeah. And you've got the the whole like, they are doing this in spite of the South. Like right. the South throughout history has done everything it can to to push north back down and to kind of you like this is where this this is where the culture is you know like come to the south right like, the north is hard the the people's ignorant like it still it still happens now like we're coming away from it but just some some things haven't changed right right like you still get and... you still have thornsons today it's um it's really interesting. I I love that they get into it kind of so soon, too. Yeah. Um, But yeah, like, I mean, Thornton goes on to talk about how the Industrial Revolution has changed people's lives for the better. You know, they are no longer dependent upon the upper classes. Um, They can leave. They can build their own fortunes. Like, this is mm-hmm. a great thing. Um, And Margaret is not having it. I mean, especially when he kind of says in comparison to the South, right? Like, oh, she gets all of defensive. these other... She gets defensive. Yeah. That's the problem. Um, and her dig is kind of like, well, you know, you guys are too focused on money. Like, there are other important things. And she's not wrong. Yeah. I think that her, you know, neither of them are arguing this well, and both of them are taking it personally. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Because... Well, because they like each other. Yes. They don't want the other one to think to think ill of them. And then they keep doing this thing where they're saying the wrong thing and yes. they're upsetting the other person. And then exactly. Because I think when, when Thornton too is like saying that, like, Hey, I am like a guy that, you know, I've built this fortune. I am a go getter. 
unlike other dudes you may have encountered in the South. It's more like, hey. He doesn't even know about Henry. He doesn't even know about (laughs) Henry, but he's also like, like, look at me. Like, I'm awesome. (laughs) Like, he's trying to put himself forward. And um, she's, you know, she shoots him down. Like, hey, um, there are other things in life besides money. There's culture. Yeah. And um, what about workers' rights? (laughs) By the way, there's <laughs> oh, the mill owners around here who are like abusing their workers. And he takes that very personally. Like, well, I don't do yeah. that. Like, that's not me. Like, I'm a stand up guy. And not all men. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> not a great argument, right? <laughs> so, yeah, best, this dinner right? kind of kicks off. And, um, you know, basically, he just he tells his story about taking care of his mom and his sister. And she's sort of, she's sort of hardened to it, you know, at this point. I don't think she's really hearing him at this point. Yeah, she's like, she's set in, isn't she? She's like, yeah. well, I've made my decision. Yeah. And actually, the last line I'd like to, I think it's really great. So the last line in this chapter is, um, a more proud, disagreeable girl I never saw. Even her great beauty is blotted out of one's memory by her scornful ways. Yeah. Damn. Great last line. Yeah. I mean, and there's also an interaction that happens between the two of them before he leaves that he sticks out his hand to shake her hand. <gasps> as oh, leaves, yeah. And she bows instead. Yes. And I think that's just a great miscommunication. Like, like that just perfectly represents their miscommunication. She's just like, what am I going to do with this handshake? I've never sh- like, I don't shake hands. But then she's immediately, she's so sorry as well, because I think she actually doesn't see it, does she? Um, so she does, she does, she is. It's that she doesn't see him hold his hand out. So it says, she simply bowed her farewell, although the instant she saw the hand, half put out, quickly drawn back, she was sorry she had not been aware of the intention. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's not like she didn't know he was high-fiving her. She didn't mean <laughs> to leave him hanging. She didn't mean it. Well, And he is just like, well, bitch. Yeah. I know. Rough. Rough. And that's where we leave it. That's where we leave it. And the next chapter is called First Impressions. This is too perfect. It's too perfect. Way too perfect. And I I get to read um, this tonight. I'm so excited. Yeah, yeah. Go go forth. Read. I'm going to have to reread, actually, because I've forgotten some stuff. So I actually read the first 10 twice because I knew I couldn't read anymore. So I read, I've I've read the first two, uh, the first 10 times two times. Yeah. You are loving this book. I, I mean, everyone's great. loving this book. Everyone book. is loving this book. Hey, so, Lauren, um, do I get to talk about ferns now? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> yes, you can. Thank you. Okay, welcome to my botany show. So something that kept coming up on Twitter and then I brought it up on Facebook because we were talking about it on Twitter. Um, I'm going to say the name wrong. May uh, Mayus Teapot. On Twitter, Quilljen and Library Mary, you're all talking about ferns. Like, what is this obsession with ferns? Are they eating them? Why are they harvesting them? What's the deal? So, ferns came up in chapter two. And I'd like to tell you that the Victorians went through fern craze. And there is a word for it. It's called pteridomania. Now, pteridomania. Now, there was a guy called Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward. And he invented this little thing called the Wardian case which is like a little portable 
greenhouse and it meant that the Victorians were the first people that were actually able to take exotic plants from one place and transport them across the world back again. Oh, cool. And a guy called George Lodges, Lodges, this guy called George, I can't say his surname, he used that technology to build a hothouse and he filled that with ferns. And he really wanted people to come and visit it. So he was just like, yeah, they like make you virile. They're really good for your mental health. Like, <laughs> ferns are great. And it was just because he, um, yeah, he, he wanted people to to come and have a look at at his ferns. And then, wow. so that was going around. And also uh, the Victorians were really big on self-improvement as we've covered uh, in the discussion. And they wanted everyone to do that. They wanted it to go from like even the very bottom of society. And so this was a hobby and an interest that was crossing class barriers. Okay. So everyone wanted ferns, everybody on any level. And they would make these little bottle gardens. They would put them in like little cloches anything that would protect them from like that smoggy atmosphere kind of the weather wasn't quite right for them that's there's, crazy and also there's only about 40 species of fern that are native to this country oh so i did not know that people were going on like expeditions they were like for going ferns. go yeah they were and people were paying people so the more rare the specimen you had like people were were paying people to literally specifically go to other countries to find ferns you know um, who has the best ferns? Me. Helston. Helston. Helston does have lots of ferns. Yeah. And Margaret liked to kick them all up. She did not care about the ferns. <laughs> at all. So, fern harvesting. There you go, guys. We've learned a thing today. And already, we've got people saying, um, uh, May uh, May's teapot, uh, an interesting evening trying to find the best fern pattern knit crochet project. There we yep. go. Excellent. So, to the Bag Crafting Society. And then Quill Jen uh, suggested that by alluding to a fern harvest in the village of Helston, it provides contrast with the industrial toil of Milton. Yes. So, we've got the leisure Excellent. and the social aspect of the South and the hardworking industry of a place devoid of ferns. So. Yes, yes. And also by bringing up those ferns too, it just brings greenery into your mind. It just brings lushness and yeah, you're just uh, it's healthy. So, I was Beautiful. saying to you, wasn't I, about how we were thinking about making a terrarium in my house mm-hmm. and like that's what um, twigged me off to the Victorian craze because I'd read in this how to make a bottle garden thing that it was really the Victorians that kicked that off. So yeah, a little fact for you. Nice. And we still love them. Terrariums, bottle gardens and ferns, which are like the most popular plants at the moment. Yeah. Uh, they've come back in vogue from hundreds of years. So those um those like fern scarves and sweaters that you guys are knitting, I think they will stay in fashion for, for a little while. Please make one for me. Yes. Um also a lot of talk about Mr. Hale. Now we yes. we covered it quite a bit in the in the recap. We did. So I, I don't know how much of this you want to go over. Um, Maybe just like as like a tiny bit of context. Um, Six years, I think, before this book was written, Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species was published. Mm-hmm. Just to give you an idea. So evolution was a thing that was suddenly being discussed. Um, that was one of the reasons that people were 
you know, questioning. Now I've read, I did quite a bit of uh, reading about why people were leaving the church Mm -hmm. and why people were questioning their faith. And apparently the evolution thing really didn't start kind of gathering speed until much later Mm-hmm. in the century so it might not be that but like it's a it's a nice bit of context and also Karl Marx uh, his communist manifesto describes religion as the opiate of the masses uh, i.e. a trick to keep the poor in their place Right. so you've got all of these external things that are kind of suddenly being discussed and all of these theological debates and all of these ideas that are floating around and then you've got people like Mr Hale just kind of stuck in the middle um, I wanted to say uh, special thanks to Leanne, Jennifer, Carolyn, Kirabel and Mary for your very lively debate on Facebook um, about faith, about people's uh, interaction with it and just kind of the context of Mr. Hale's decision there mm-hmm. and just really trying to get to the bottom of it. And then we had a couple of people on Twitter who suggested that industrialization was the important thing. So mm-hmm. uh, Contest Liz said, maybe touch on the importance of the industrialised impact on society on that era. And then Quill Jen again said, a tenet of romanticism is the divinity of nature. The emphasis on Hellstone's landscape and departure equals a symbolic and literal break with the church. Yeah. So I thought, you know, these were great, great insights. Great, great insights. Um. I will, rolling it back just a little bit, I will say that um, Darwin, also a Unitarian. So Gaskell, very aware of Darwin, um, knew the family as well. So there was a connection there. So so yeah, I do think that that's definitely coming into play within her writing. Um, Yeah, God, we could do more. We could just do like an entire episode on industrialization. (laughs) I think the thing is like, it's going to be such a big thing in in the book. That, that we're gonna we're gonna talk about it every episode. Yeah, because I'm I'm not talking about flax this week. I might talk about flax next week. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> I mean, does it? Does it sound boring? <laughs> um, Leanne also had a great comment this week about uh, reading North and South, and said that uh, reading Gaskell really made me appreciate how Austin is a freaking comedic genius. Even though I love North and South, it's not exactly funny. Yeah. Um, very true. Um, Gaskell's a very different writer. Yeah. You know, we are comparing this lightly to Pride and Prejudice to sort of bring it back around to the podcast. But also, I love comparing and contrasting things because it just it gives it you something to bounce off. better. It does, and um, but they're very different books. Yes. Like they're, re- I actually kind of am surprised that this uh, Pride and Prejudice comparison keeps coming up because I feel like they are very, very different writers. They are very, very different books. But one thing I do really appreciate about Gaskell's writing in comparison to Jane Austen's writing, and I feel like this is going to get me a few knocks, but here oh, we go. Gosh. Um, is it's true. Gaskell's not very funny, but I think she's less. Um, she doesn't make snap judgments. Yeah. Like she does give you the good and the bad with the characters. And she sort of lives in the gray. Like she lets you yeah, sort definitely. of like make the calls. It's much more balanced. And- and you it get all of the balanced. information. She's not doing the thing that Austin gives you, like, the... Austin's always got, like, a heroine, and it's just that person's story, and you find out everything as they find out. And the Brontes are telling you the story. Like, they are telling you, so they are choosing what information you get. Whereas Gaskell right. is like, have everything. Mm-hmm. Have it all now. And then you just you go off and make up your minds. Yeah, exactly. I really like that about her storytelling. And, yeah. um yeah, I just feel like Austin kind of leads the witness a little bit. I also think she's more conversational lot. than the other two. 
I yeah. loved um, the, on the very first page, there's this long sentence where it kind of starts off by saying, oh, we were talking about the wedding and the wedding dresses and the wedding invitations and the dinner and everyone that was being invited. And then we were talking about uh, how she was going to go and live in Corfu and, you know, mm-hmm. how Edith was worried about this. And then, oh, Edith is asleep. And it's yeah. the longest sentence and it's kind of exhaustive. And you're like, oh, you're right. This is like so it's such a good way of kind of getting across like this is an endless conversation and Edith has fallen asleep. Right. And she does stuff like that a lot. Like she's a very natural writer. It's very, she's very, very readable as you kept telling me when I was stuck in Villette. Yeah. She's very readable and she's very, I mean, she's, yeah, she's great with characters and she's great with women. This is a woman you can tell. um, She had a very different life to Jane and the Bronte sisters, you know, obviously she was married. She had a lot of kids as well. And she was very sociable. And mm-hmm. she was, a you know, a vicar's wife. Again, I'm probably using vicar wrong as well. But you know, just going for let it. Us know. You just um, let us know. So she, this is a woman that like, you know, socialized a bit. She had a lot of stories to tell. So um, yeah, I think it's really coming through in her writing. Yeah. Have we got time for proud mags really, really quick? Let's do a little bit of proud mags here because there were some great comments. Um, everyone had a lot to say about Margaret. <laughs> so um, our friend Isabel Greenberg said that her fave quote so far was, wait a minute, I am overpowered by the discovery of my own genius for management. Humble mags. <laughs> yeah. It's a great quote though. <laughs> it is. It is. Also, I don't like shoppy people. <laughs> yeah, I know. I underlined that one as well. Uh, awful. And then uh, Kimberly on Facebook said that uh, Margaret seems like a bit of a dot 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 prig and then says that perhaps she is a Darcy type snob. Yep. Pretty so, much. There we go. We're all, I think we're all in one here. No one's coming out kind of massively defending Margaret because she's not she's not wholly unlikable that that is the thing here it's like she's got this yeah. like little quirk to her personality but she's bringing it back mm-hmm. like you know when her dad says do you want to go and tell your mum she's like oh I don't really want to but you know it's a rubbish job someone's got to do it you've obviously got a lot on your plate I'll go ahead like she she wants to help people she it. doesn't want to hurt Henry's feelings she doesn't want to hurt Mr Thornton's feelings She's not trying to be snobbish. It's just she's kind of battling who she is a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. We like Mags. That's not bad for a 19-year-old girl. She doesn't have a lot of experience, guys. There was no internet back then. (laughs) She's not well-traveled. Like, she's not, you know, like, she is is who she is. She's growing. And we are on a journey with this character. I am on this journey. I am there. I'm there for Thornton. I'm there for Proud Mags. I'm there for Mr. Hale. Wow. I'm not there for Bates. I don't enjoy Bates. Don't enjoy Bates. Yeah. I mean, Nicholas. Well, Nicholas Bates. <laughs> we will get into it more next week. So next week, a um, couple things are happening. We are um, going to start our guest episodes as well for this series because we do have a few Gaskell related guests. Um, what I might do is release those episodes separately because I think the recaps are going to be pretty long. So, um, we will have, uh, Nancy Holder on the show next week. She is an awesome New York Times bestselling author. 
And she has written a comic that is based on um, one of Elizabeth Gaskell's ghost stories. The Old Nurse's Tale, I believe it's called. Oh. So, yeah. That sounds great. It's really great. Sounds spooky. It's a great comic. It came out um, produced by Chimera Press. And um, yeah, I highly suggest you guys pick it up. I do have a few extra copies, so we're going to see what happens with those. And I'm um, getting one, right? Yeah, I think you'll get one. (laughs) Okay, cool. Thanks. Just checking. (laughs) And also on the show, we will have um, Lacey Shaw. And Lacey is the creator of the North and South um, literary inspired web series that came out today. So yeah, Today. today. Literally, it's fresh. You can... Stop listening to this podcast and go and watch the web the web series right now. You can. It is called Maggie Hale's Corner. So yeah, um, check those out, guys, and we will talk about them more um, in the coming weeks. And I just want to say thank you guys so, so much for participating. This has been awesome. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm like, we're just really looking forward to your thoughts on um, the next set of chapters. <laughs> <laughs>